Hey, this is Wyatt from RealisticPreparedness.com, and this is the third in our three-part series on first aid kits, emergency medical kits, and basic medical concerns during disasters. The first two episodes overviewed first aid kits and then the more capable emergency medical kits. Today, we're going to spend a little time taking a look at some of the specific things that you can put in your kit and a few ideas that will make packing and using your kits easier. First, let's cover a few hints for packing a kit. The outer bag that you're going to store everything in can be as simple as a heavyweight Ziploc bag for a simple kit. Um, bags that have more organization work better for finding what you need in a hurry than just plain ones. It makes sense to have an idea of what you want to carry before you stock up on a bunch of bags to keep your kits in so that you end up with bags that are about the right size rather than trying to jam a bunch of stuff into a bag that's just too small. The free first aid kit worksheet on our website can help you with this and it's a totally free download, no questions asked. Uh, hard cases are a nice option since they'll protect whatever gear is inside them, but they don't pack particularly well and they usually don't have much in the way of pockets for organization on the inside. Since hard plastic boxes tend to be bulky, they do limit where you can keep your kit. A good nylon bag is a common choice since they are durable and come in a ton of sizes and the good ones will have pockets, loops, and pouches on the inside to help keep the medical supplies organized. Another hint, I'd consider building some what we call bleeding bags. These are just plain Ziploc sandwich sized bags with enough supplies in them to cover basic bleeding issues such as a pair of gloves, some gauze, a few bandages, a disinfectant wipe, a packet of AAA antibiotic ointment. These are packed toward the top of your kit. In most circumstances, uh, most common injuries that you'll see will involve some kind of minor damage to the skin that needs to be cleaned and covered. The bleeding bags are designed to be disposable. It's a set. It's got the most frequently used items for these kinds of minor bleeding issues, since blood tends to get everywhere. This gives you everything that you need to quickly treat these problems within easy reach and without having to dig around through your kit to find all the separate items. This is also something that can be easily pulled out of the kit and handed to someone else, and it's disposable. You don't have to ask for it back. If they bleed all over it, so what? It's theirs to keep. Else in situations where there are multiple injured people, if you've got a few of these bleeding bag mini kits available, you can pass them out so that you and then a few other folks can start helping people all at the same time. Uh, injured people tend to stay more calm and panic less if there's someone right there helping them. Well, let's talk about the packaging of supplies real quick. The most common packages that you're going to see are some kind of a bottle, either glass or plastic, or a foil, plastic, or a paper packet, one of the two. The bottles tend to hold multiple servings of a product, while the packets are often designed to be a single serving size. Uh, Betadine is a good example of this. You can get a big bottle of Betadine and then use a cotton ball or a little gauze square to dispense some of it out for each use without contaminating the rest of the bottle. And this is probably the most cost-effective option for most things packaged this way. Little individual-use packets with like a wipe inside that's been soaked in Betadine. They're more convenient, but you do have to be careful not to fold or bend the package any more than you have to, otherwise it will spring a little leak and, and dry out the contents. This will also get iodine solution all over the inside of your kit if you forget to keep these packets in their own little Ziploc bags. If you need a supply of little Ziploc bags, 
Walmart's a good place to pick them up in the craft section. Now, my local Walmart has three or four different sizes of them. They're pretty cheap. Now, betadine is also available in a kind of a pre-soaked swab. Now, these work really well since they're basically a big Q-tip soaked in the stuff. But the swabs do have edges that want to poke holes in the packaging if they're bent up too often. So all these options are really trade-offs. The individually wrapped ones are the most convenient, but the large containers are the most cost-effective. Same is true with pills like aspirin. A big bottle of the store brand is only a few bucks at stores like Walmart. Uh, the two pill packets and the little travel side tubes cost a lot more per pill, but they're easier to pack. I'd consider having multiples of the same item in Ziploc bags for swabs and, and packets, or carry both a few swabs and a small ball of betadine with cotton balls or galls in a larger kit. Uh, same basic idea holds true with pills. Make sure that you have enough with you and, and keep everything organized so you can find it when you need it. You have to just balance out these options and choose what makes the most sense in a specific situation. Also, keep in mind that first aid kits never give you enough gloves. To estimate how many pairs of gloves you're going to need in your kit, figure on wearing a new pair every time you help someone, and then add a few extra pairs onto that number. The two most common glove materials are latex and nitrile. I'd suggest getting nitrile gloves that fit your hands. Gloves do come in sizes, and you'll be happier and safer with ones that fit well. Nitrile gloves aren't an issue for folks with latex allergies. Uh, and the good ones can be pretty durable, and if the gloves fail, they tend to rip instead of just getting a little hole like latex can. This is actually a plus, because the sooner you see that your glove has failed, the sooner you can get them off and wash your hands really, really well. A glove with a small hole in it is just a false sense of security that will leave you with possibly contaminated blood on your hands for that much longer. Now when you put your gloves on, do, do it gently. Don't stretch them out any more than you have to so that you don't cause weak spots in the gloves. To take them off, remember that the outside of the glove is contaminated. So what you want to do is peel them off from the wrist closest to your elbow up over the fingers. When you take the first glove most of the way off, you can then grab the wrist of the other glove and put the dirty glove in the palm of the hand that still has the second glove on it. Then peel the wrist section up and over so that you're kind of making a, a package with the inside of the glove now turned inside out and the dirty part of both gloves now wrapped up in there. That way, when you go to dispose of it, you're not just taking the blood on the outside of the glove, spreading it around all over everything. Now as far as pre-made kits go, if you insist on buying a pre-made first aid kit, first make sure that you check out the contents. If you're only going to get one first aid kit, a pre-made kit can be cost effective. But for example, the Coleman Expedition first aid kit sounds really impressive. I mean, it's designed for expeditions. It says so in the title. Uh, it looks nice. It comes in a, in a pretty cool case. And it costs less than 20 bucks. But it really has pretty limited contents. Uh, this kind of kit would be a good starting point for kind of building up. Uh, if you plan on supplementing its contents a good bit, it can be a pretty decent kit. If you just take a look at the front of the package, it claims that this is a 200-piece kit that has an expanded inventory of first aid components for longer trips and larger groups, but this is really just marketing. If you flip it over and look at the back, there's only one pair of gloves in this kit. I'm not sure how long of a trip with how large of a group they were really planning for, but I guess only one person is allowed to bleed the whole time. It just doesn't make much sense. But there's over a hundred band-aids to patch that one person up with. 
This is your basic box of Band-Aid first aid kit, which most first aid kits are. It does have a much nicer case than a normal kit though, so not a bad starting point if you're willing to supplement. A good starting point for a, a more comprehensive setup, like a large first aid kit or a small emergency medical kit, would be the Adventure Medical Mountain Fundamentals Kit. You would still want to supplement the supplies on this a bit, but the kit allows for this and includes things like empty plastic vials for you to keep additional medications in. It's a good-sized bag. It's got excellent organization of the included supplies. They have different labeled categories. So if someone's bleeding, all the stuff for bleeding is in its own little category. It's got a big label on it. It includes a much better assortment of supplies than most of the smaller kits. It's got a SAM splint and a bandage for dealing with sprains and strains type of injuries. So it's a really good starting point and not a bad kit by itself. If you've got more money than time and you want everything taken care of for you, you just you don't want to deal with putting your own kit together, then the Cadillac of first aid kits is a wilderness medical systems. They're the high end of the first aid kit spectrum. They'll design and build you a kit for your specific needs after talking with you. They've got everything from a doctor on staff who can add prescription medications to your kit to an affiliation with a company called Global Rescue that will literally fly in and pick you up from any third world country that you've had the misfortune to travel to and drop you off at a hospital. And it goes without saying that this level of service comes with an appropriate price tag where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars or more. On the other end, your best bang for the buck comes from doing your own legwork and putting your own kits together, especially if you're making multiple kits. Our free first aid kit worksheet we mentioned before will help you get started with this. Now, assuming you've taken the time to plan out and you know how much of each item are going in your kits, here are some specific recommendations for different kit items, just based on my own experiences. To help keep things simple, I'm going to sort these by the same categories on the first aid kit worksheet. I've also got a link for each of these in the show notes on realisticpreparedness.com so you can get a feel for which each of these items costs, what the packaging looks like, things like that. When you're shopping for these items, hitting your local Walmart is going to be your best bang for the buck for things like band-aids and antibacterial ointment. Uh, They will have things like individual tubes of triple antibiotic, but they're not going to have the little individual packets of triple antibiotic. For that kind of stuff, you're going to have to either hit a, a medical supply store or shop online. There's enough catalog companies of medical supplies that have their own websites that shopping online can get you some really good deals. Also, a lot of these different companies are also listed on Amazon.com, so it's a good place to start there as well. So, for shopping, for getting the best deal, hit your local Walmart for the small stuff. If you're building multiple kits, uh, not a bad idea to get together with a friend kind of go in it together, and you can get economies of scale by buying large quantities of some of these items. Take a look at the links on my website, price out some stuff, and that kind of gives you a starting point for when you're looking to decide, hey, how good of a deal is this? So with that in mind, we're shopping for items to stop bleeding. For small wounds, uh, Band-Aids are the winner here. The basic kind of quick way to tell is a Band-Aid a good Band-Aid or not, because there's all kinds of aftermarket varieties, is check do they seal all the way around the pad or just on two sides. Cheap Band-Aids will only seal on the left and right side of the wound. Top and bottom will be open. This is better than nothing, but it's not as good as sealing all the way around. 
the Equate fabric bandages from Walmart. These are inexpensive fabric bandages. The fabric ones are nice because they tend to flex, and so if you're moving around, they're less likely to come off. They're more comfortable. If they get damp, they do tend to stay damp. Curad makes uh, their Flexi fabric bandages. It's another good brand of these that's available. Some of my favorite band-aids are actually the foam bandages. These stick really well. They flex. They don't hold water. Some of them, though, can be a, a latex allergy issue. Make sure you check the box and see before you stock up. For larger wounds, uh, Kindle's a good brand of sterile uh, 4x4s. These are just your basic gauze squares. To go with that, you want a non-adherent dressing. A telfa is the most common name in these. These go under the gauze, next to the skin, so the gauze doesn't get glued to your skin with dried blood and such. Then you have to peel it off the wound, which peels off the scab, the clot, it starts bleeding again, and you're starting all over. For taping around the edges of these, by far, 3M makes some of the best tape. Their Durapore Silk Tape is the best tape I've found. It wants to stay stuck to you, but it won't peel all your skin off when you go to remove it. For the eye really messed up sized wounds, 3M Sterile Strip Skin Closures. These are just basically strips of super medical tape that you can lay on top of a big gash like railroad tracks. Pull the sides of the wound together so it's flat, put them on at a 90 degree angle to the wound and space them apart so when you're done it looks like a railroad track. These are a replacement for stitches in, in a lot of situations. To make sure that these stick really well, a uh, tincture of benzoin, get a bottle of this stuff, or you can get swab sticks, put it on before you apply the stereo strips. It'll stick really, really, really well. Also, uh, Curlix, it's gauze rolls. These are good for covering large areas of skin, like wrapping up an arm. Uh, they can also be used as wrapping to hold other gauze in place. What makes Curlix nice as opposed to regular gauze is it's a little bit stretchy. So it's got almost a little bit of an elastic feel for it for kind of holding things in place. Your Swiss Army knife of bandages is the is, is really the six-inch compression bandage. For big problems, like if you end up with a hole in you somewhere where there shouldn't be a hole, these are good if you take the time to learn how to use one. The easiest thing to do is pick up a couple and then buy a spare. Take the spare out of the packaging and then practice with the, on a friend who isn't hurt so there's no stress. Then you can take the time to put it on, put it off a couple of times, switch off, they can get a chance to learn how to use it and play with it. There's plenty of training videos online on how to use these. It's really, it's pretty straightforward after you've done it a few times. They can be used a bunch of different ways with a little creativity. It's a, a simple product that solves a bunch of different problems. For preventing infection, Purell, they have their premium hand sanitizing wipes. There's also a cheaper version of these, but the, the premium ones, they've got a good scrubbing surface wipe that unfolds with alcohol gel soaked into it for scrubbing your hands really good, getting off dirt, blood, things like that. Purell Advance in the little small bottle, little germ grenades. This is just quick and easy access to hand sanitizer. You can keep it with you, have it when you need it, uh, for keeping your hands, the hands of other people clean, so that you don't get sick from not washing your hands when it isn't convenient. Antiseptic wipes. Once again, pretty obvious, these kill germs. I hope you clean the skin before sticking on a Band-Aid, something like that. Putting a Band-Aid on a bloody or a dirty, greasy skin, it's futile. Uh, it'll peel off. You'll just be doing it again all over soon. Not really getting anywhere. Betadine, the antiseptic pads. These kill germs with iodine. Uh, betadine, 
if you're not familiar with it, we mentioned it a little bit ago. It's that dark brown stuff that you see your doctor or hospital use that stains your skin for a while after you put it on. It will also stain clothes, which can be a drawback. But the color change on your skin, it's a nice reminder that this area on a patient's been cleaned at least once before if you're dealing with multiple injured folks at the same time. Triple antibiotic ointment. You can get this either in a tube or in packets. The packets are nice because they're single-use, no cross-contamination issues. You just squeeze them out, throw away the packaging when you're done. The packets are hard to find, though, in small quantities without shopping online or going to a medical supply store. Tubes give you the best bang for your buck. If you're going to be using the tubes, do make sure that you have cotton balls or gauze squares handy for dispensing it to reduce the chance of cross-contamination with the supply in the tube. An irrigation syringe, uh, this is just used almost kind of like a squirt gun to wash out dirty wounds with clean water. Covering over a dirty wound with a bandage is just asking for trouble in a few days when it ends up getting infected. So for deeper gashes, you do want to rinse them out real well. Make sure you've got all the dirt, bacteria, everything you can get out of there before you cover it up. For sprains and strains type of injuries, athletic tape and an elastic bandage really can come in handy. Uh, do learn the proper way to wrap a wrist or a knee or an ankle for support with these. Once again, plenty of sports medicine type of training videos online. They'll show you multiple ways to do this right. Triangular bandage is a good idea. This is another multi-use item. You can use it as a bandage to apply pressure to a wound, or it can be used for a sling for a broken arm. It can be used as wrapping or padding if you're putting together a makeshift splint for someone's leg. All kinds of uses for this. Also, a SAM-style splint. There's the SAM splints, and there's some aftermarket knockoffs, which are pretty good. These, you can fold it up to splint arms, legs, necks, whatever. It's basically a flexible sheet of aluminum covered with some foam padding, and you can bend it or cut it as needed. Once again, training videos online will show you how to use one of these effectively. There's also a smaller version, the SAM finger splints. Those are pretty self-explanatory. Gives you an easy way with one of these little bit of tape to splint up a finger. Now for flu complications, Imodium is a good idea. Because if you end up with the squirts for too long, you can end up dehydrated and die. This is really, it's a pretty common killer in some third world countries. And it could end up being a, a real threat in a disaster situation where you don't have access to things like clean water and clean hands. If those things are in short supply, this can really end up being a problem. Uh, Mucinex, Robitussin, some kind of an expectorant. If you get cold or flu symptoms, you want to keep the mucus and the phlegm moving. Anything that you cough up or blow out of your nose isn't bagging up inside your respiratory system, making you sick. If you clear it up, it's not sitting there being a breeding ground for bacteria. In short, you don't want pneumonia. It's an easy, inexpensive way to help prevent that. Also, Gatorade powder packets. This is for rehydration. You mix it with clean water. I think it works better when you cut it to about half strength so that there's more water and less sugar. Gives you a way to get some salt, sugar, electrolytes, and whatnot back in your system. For fever, uh, Advil and Tylenol are good to have on hand. Advil you can take every four hours, and Tylenol you can take every four hours, but your body processes these two drugs differently, so you can do two-hour rotations if you alternate back and forth. You can take Advil, 
wait two hours, take Tylenol. Wait two more hours, now take Advil. Wait two more hours, now take Tylenol. So there's four hours between each Tylenol and between each Advil. And these are obviously, of course, painkillers for other kinds of injuries that you might need to take the edge off of. For burns, like a water gel, burn gel type of product, these are good for small burns that should not require really any further medical attention, such as accidentally touching the stove. Uh, it's really going to hurt, and this stuff helps. For really big or really bad burns that are going to require a trip to the doctor or to the hospital, anything you put on them, they're just going to have to take it off later, which is just going to make them hurt that much worse. If you need to cover the wound, you can get uh, petrolitum dressings. These just let you cover larger burns with something that's not going to stick to them, like plain gauze will, and have to be peeled off later. That's going to be about as much fun as it sounds like. As for tools, uh, a good pair of stainless steel tweezers. I like Tweezer Man tweezers. You want a good quality, sharp, pointy tweezers. Not eyebrow tweezers, but good pointy ones for pulling out things like splinters, pieces of broken glass, stuff like that. A pair of uh, Kelly forceps or hemostats. These are the magic trick for pulling out cactus spines, porcupine quills, or any other barbed object that doesn't want to slide right out. These will let you grip onto it and take it out even though it doesn't want to play along. It's a good idea to have a, like a pocket resuscitator. ADC makes a, a good inexpensive one. This will help you from getting a mouthful of someone else's throw up when doing mouth to mouth. In real life, the longer you do mouth to mouth, the more likely that person is to puke. You should sign up for a CPR class, though, so that you know what to do. It's good to have a refresher training every few years for this, if you've taken the class before. And if it's been a while, some of the techniques have changed and gotten updated over the years. So not a bad idea to sign up for one of those and know what you're doing. It's also good to have a little flashlight. I've got a Streamlight Stylus Pro little pin flashlight in my everyday first aid kit. It's a small, bright flashlight. People are very inconsiderate and sometimes go and get themselves hurt after dark or in strange places. So, flashlight comes in handy. Medical scissors, these obviously are for cutting stuff. The bigger EMT type of shears will let you cut a shoe off of a swollen foot if you need to, but do keep in mind that most of these are made to be somewhat disposable. They work great when they're new, but they don't last as long as you'd like. So don't count on just having one pair and using them for years. It's not going to work out. A digital thermometer is a good idea. It's the easiest way to tell whether or not someone has a fever. The digital models, they're a smidge less accurate than the old-style mercury or alcohol thermometers, but they're a lot easier to read. So it's a lot more idiot-proof when you're under stress. Also, get some digital thermometer covers, just little thin plastic covers. This makes it that much easier to use because when you're done you can throw them away just like your doctor does when he takes your temperature. So it's a lot easier than having to clean your thermometer after every use with an alcohol wipe. Now in the comfort other category there's a product it used to be called Compede. Now it's sold under the Band-Aid Advanced Healing Blister Cushions. But these are the magic cures for blisters. If you get a blister on the heel of your foot, the bottom of your foot, these things are just amazing. They were originally made for mountaineering, and they work really, really well. They, they're multiple, multiple layers kind of sandwiched together. They, they function as an artificial blister, really. And when you put one on, 
plan on basically waiting for it to wear off after a few days rather than trying to peel it off and replace it every day. They stick like glue. Uh, I love them. For me, they work better than anything else for blisters. The traditional blister fix is moleskin. Uh, it works really well for blisters and hot spots that aren't combi-sized, and it's basically a heavy tape that's fuzzy on one side. There's a similar product called Mole Foam. It's the same basic thing, but with a thin, squishy layer of foam in the middle. Uh, it is thicker, but some people like it better. The real trick with any kind of moleskin product is when you cut off a piece to use it, take your scissors and round the corners before peeling off the backing and sticking it on you. The perfect piece would be a circle or an oval. If you leave square corners, they will start to peel up pretty quickly, and then they will slowly take the rest of the piece of moleskin off with it. If you get rid of those corners, it sticks a lot better. The emergency Mylar thermal blankets that you see, survival blankets, they're cheap, they're small, it's an easy way to help keep someone warm and dry, help ward off shock. They're thin and they tear easily, so be really careful of anything with a sharp or pointy edge. They're basically single-use disposable items. Also, good idea to keep, as we've mentioned before, a supply of cotton balls or small gauze squares for applying any kind of a medicine that comes from a tube or a bottle. Also, products like your favorite brand of sunscreen, chapstick, and acid tablets, a really good idea to keep some of those on hand as well. Now, what if you or a family member, you're in a difficult situation where they have an asthma nebulizer or they need medicine that has to be stored chilled or they have a small home medical device like an oxygen concentrator that has to have electricity in order to run? Uh, it would make sense to have a generator to supply enough electricity to run these devices, but that's just not always feasible. In a pinch, you can actually run an inverter off your car battery. People with RVs do this all the time for running electrical devices inside the RV. You do need to take a look, though, and see how much power output you'll need to run your specific device, and then leave a, a margin of error on top of that. For powering larger devices, you're probably going to need to get the type of inverter that runs directly off your car battery, not the kind that plugs into the cigarette lighter. There's only so much electricity you can feed to a cigarette lighter plug. If you leave your car running, you can ballpark guess that you're going to get about one hour of gas producing one hour of electricity, so budget accordingly. You don't want to use up all the gas in your vehicle and not be able to travel if you need to. Now, as a last point, we've mentioned this before, but training is just as important as gear. A big bag full of neat stuff that you don't know how to use correctly is pretty useless. Invest the time and effort in getting some kind of medical training for yourself. You know what your skill level is. Take whatever classes can be the next step up for you. There are multiple inexpensive options. The Red Cross offers all kinds of classes. The community college has classes. There's online training. Books from the library. Amazon.com has books. Check and see our CERT classes available in your area. But just keep in mind, the better trained you are, the better you'll be able to handle both big and small problems when they pop up. As always, we plan and prepare so we don't have to worry about problems, not so that we can worry about them. As always, you can find out more about this and other related topics at realisticpreparedness.com. So take care, and we'll talk to you soon.